From the first petite bouillon parlor in turn of the 19th century Paris to the gastronomic shrines of today, the French obsession with eating well has brought a certain theatricality to everything, from the farm to the kitchen to the dining room table itself. But as Adam Gopnik learned, it doesn't have to be expensive. There's fancy food and then there's good food. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, Adam Gopnik dishes with us about the -the behind-the-scenes discoveries he made in France, where spending time at the table with family and friends is the centerpiece of a good day. The great bulk of the cooking that goes on in France, like the great bulk of the cooking that goes on in America, isn't fancy. It tends to be the plain food we prepare every night. We'll also turn our sights south to Portugal, where local friends from both ends of the country explain the highlights of their cuisine. We have a long coast, always bathed by the Atlantic Ocean, but we have the latitude of the Mediterranean Sea. It promises to be a delicious hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When New Yorker Adam Gopnik went to France, he discovered how the French appetite for eating well and the rituals they include with preparing and enjoying a proper meal can make every day a pleasure wherever you are. He joins us in just a moment to explain why the table comes first in France. And later in the hour, tour guide friends from Portugal provide us a taste of their food culture, from hearty stews in chilly mountain villages to seafood on a sun-drenched patio by the sea and why codfish is still at the heart of the Portuguese palate. We're joined today by Adam Gopnik. He's a New Yorker writer, and he spent five years living in France with his family and learning firsthand about the importance of eating in the French family. His new book, The Table Comes First, Family, France, and the Meaning of Food, explains what he took out of that experience. Adam, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Adam, I love this quote that you say, what goes on the table is not as important as what goes on around the table. And when we think about the difference between American eating and French eating, I'm surprised that the stress wouldn't be on the fancy cooking. Well, I think that that's a kind of false way of seeing What makes France an interesting place to live in and to eat in? Fancy cooking is something that grew up in France, of course, but the great bulk of the cooking that goes on in France, like the great bulk of the cooking that goes on in America, isn't fancy. It tends to be the plain food we prepare every night. And what really, I think, begins to distinguish what we love about French food, why people go to France so much, is the the cultural spirit, the rituals, the feeling that passes around the table just as much as the things we choose to eat. I love that the ritual of eating is just as important. And in France, there really is a ritual of eating. How would you compare that with eating in the United States? Well, you know, somebody once said, maybe it was me, that the most valuable thing in food 200 years ago was protein. That was the most expensive thing. Now the most valuable and expensive thing in food is time. Having the time to prepare food, having the time to enjoy food. One of the French rituals that is very alien to the United States, of course, is the long lunch. I remember when I was living in France, I had terrible difficulties being a kind of puritanical, a high-energy, impatient New Yorker, absorbing the idea that if you sat down to lunch with somebody, you were expected to have dinner, three <laughs> courses, and a bottle of wine. And I'm one of those people on whom wine in the middle of the afternoon seems to be a totally different food or intoxicant than it is at night. I don't know if you have those feelings, Rick. If I drink wine at 7 o'clock, I feel fabulous. If I drink it at one thirty in the afternoon, I feel like I've had, uh, you know, 20 Valium injected into my system. So learning how those rituals work, and even more important, Rick, in a sense, what those rituals mean. That is, when you have that kind of long lunch in Paris, what it really means is, is that somebody is offering you their friendship. They're offering you a certain kind of intimacy. In America, we depend a lot on quick hits and a kind of false intimacy. You're my friend. We call each other by our first names. All of that stuff happens very quickly. In France, it unfolds over a much greater period of time, and then it has much more adhesion as time goes on. Sharing a meal really means the beginnings of sharing a life. I'll never forget once I was in France, and we were in Nice, and we were having this incredible meal, and it was completely accidental, I think, but everything was right. The food was right. The wine mm-hmm. was right. The the camaraderie was right, and we were clearly energizing the whole corner of our restaurant. And I remember Mm -hmm. the people at the next table told the waiter they wanted to drink the same wine we were drinking, thinking that (laughs) that was the trick. But it was more than just the wine. A Meg Ryan moment. We'll have what they're having, right? Yeah, it was we'll have what they're having. I mean, we were just, it was wonderful. 
But don't you always think that that's the test of a great meal? I always like to say it's if the vectors point out that you suddenly have a strange feeling that the table has levitated in front of you (laughs) through the combination of the things you eat and the people you're with. And one of the things that I don't like very often about fancy eating in America is that all the vectors seem to point inward. You have to focus on the red volcanic salt and the sea urchin foam on your plate at the expense of that exchange of social generosity, which I think is the real reason that we eat together, that I think is at the heart of the meaning of food. You know, that's related to me to pretense. And I find myself, when I'm working on my guidebooks and I find a good restaurant that may be expensive but a great value, it's generally a place that I'll say, you know, great food, no pretense. Isn't that what we're all looking for? I mean, it's funny, actually, you know, in France today, I don't know if you've come across them, there's a movement who call themselves, of all things, Le Fooding, <laughs> who are trying to remake France, not so much in the image of America, but in the image of a, a faster and friendlier and more informal culture. They hate the pomposity of three-star dining. They want to have great French food, but they want to have it in a completely relaxed spirit. And they've sort of taken on the Michelin Guide, and they're publishing their own guide, which leaves out all those three-star temples. I wonder if the French can uh, be inspired by the Italians in that regard. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Don't you think that Italian food, in America at least, has become more kind of the lingua franca, the default case, the thing we're likeliest to cook or to eat when we go out? Exactly because Italian food seems to be made by cooks rather than by chefs. It seems to be kind of natural expression of uh, family life, of peasant life, if you like. And I think that's one of the things that's appealing about it. On the other hand, I don't know about you, but I still get an enormous thrill from the sheer artisanal expertise of a great French chef, you know, somebody who can produce a souffle or a proper, I haven't had beef wellington in a long time, but the kind of thing that demands an expertise that you and I can't begin to share, there's a thrill in that too. I'm speaking with Adam Gopnik, and Adam's new book is called The Table Comes First, Family, France, and the Meaning of Food. And Adam, you're talking about, in your book, you talked about how in France, modern cuisine is divided between molecular cooking, where there's sort of a chef with a lab coat, and then the slow food kind of cooking, which almost comes out of grandma's kitchen. Can you comment on that? Right. I think that's a division we find not just in France, but right around the world now. You know, those molecular guys come particularly from uh, from Spain, but now in America, Nathan Mirvold, of course, has published a uh, $600 uh, book just about it all. And they're all about kind of Willy Wonka stuff, transformation, take everything and turn it into into something else. It's kind of a form of uh, stage magic, really. And then the slow food movement, which I'm very sympathetic with, is all about restoring exactly the kind of the spirit of sustainable peasant eating. They're very, very different movements, and yet, you know what they have in common? It's exactly what we were talking about before. They're all about time. They're all about taking four hours to eat your magical molecular dinner, and they're all about taking seven hours to braise (laughs) your local lamb. I've come out of a backpacker heritage, and and just, uh, you know, kind of dorm food. It's horrible, and it's taken me a long time to warm up to the value of spending a lot of time and money eating. And just this last year, I've, I've had this sort of um, revelation that, you know, you're spending 50 or 60 bucks for a meal. It's not just nutrition. It's three hours of lavishing yourself with just sensuality and enjoying the ritual, enjoying the, the buildup, enjoying the conviviality. And I just took my notepad to a nice dinner in France, and I had so much fun just taking the opportunity to observe and appreciate all the fine points way beyond the menu that made that meal a beautiful three hours and $50 well spent. Well, that's true, isn't it? The restaurant table is a form of theater. It's a theater that we all can enter, that we all sort of have to enter when we're on the road especially every night. And if you see it as theater, if you see the waiters as the chorus and you see the, the chef as the hidden hero who you're only <laughs> going to see at the end of the third act, then you really begin to enjoy it. It's a little theatrical representation of the country that you're visiting. Just the way the table we eat at home may not be theatrical in that same way, but it's very much the raft that we go down, family life, altogether. Yeah. You know, you just hit it there for me because I'm thinking of my favorite meal in Italy recently, and it was in Enoteca, where you've just got a Mm -hmm. couple of small tables and a guy who loves the ingredients as they match up with the wine, and he takes a personal interest in your meal. And I, I find I'm I'm drinking, like, way more than I normally drink. I'm eating for twice as long as I eat. And when I leave, I feel like I need a cigarette, even though I don't smoke. I mean, it's the most beautiful experience, that enoteca. 
it's a wonderful way to eat, isn't it? You know, the thing you need at the end there is a double espresso, it seems to me. One <laughs> of the things it. I think is true about eating is that it depends on the passage from wine to coffee, from, uh, from spirits yeah. to caffeine. That's really what organizes our meals. And then at the end, I, I've noticed there's almost like a, a celebration of chemistry and beakers and, and extra liquids that are all different kinds of fire water and sweet this and, and cookies. And it just keeps on going. They don't want to finish it. That's the ritual of a good dinner, isn't it? You, you don't want to finish it. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating food with Adam Gopnik. And we know Adam from his book, Paris to the Moon. Adam's new book is The Table Comes First. Adam, you go way back in the history of this and, and have a wonderful kind of uh, contagious fascination with the whole art and ritual of eating. And uh, I love it when you're talking about the two R's, restaurants and recipe books. You mentioned something how the restaurant exists to coax women into having sex and the mm. recipe book is there to coax men into staying home. Tell us more about that. Don't you think it's true? Well, one of the things that's true about restaurants from the time that the kind of modern restaurant, the kind we know now, first appeared in France right around... 1780 and 1790, around the time of the French Revolution, is that they were always little theaters of romance, just the way they are today. The idea that one of the ways that you would try to woo somebody was to bring them to a meal where you would make choices, where you would show off your knowledge, your savoir-faire, your expertise. This is still the thing we do today. When you're turned on by somebody, what's the first thing you do? You ask them out to dinner. Or you take them home and you cook for them there. Um, that was traditionally a much more feminine occupation, reading recipes and cooking. But blessedly, it's one that's become more and more uh, ambisexual. I am actually the cook in our house. I do the cooking every night for our family. My wife was the daughter of a wonderful feminist mother who refused to teach her daughter to cook because she didn't want her to get imprisoned in the kitchen. My mother was an equally strong feminist who insisted on teaching her sons to cook because... She wanted them to know what it was like to be imprisoned in the kitchen. Not to be imprisoned, but to be uh, masterly to some degree in the kitchen. Now, you wrote that both restaurants and recipe books are modern. How so? Well, surprisingly, though, of course, people have been eating as long as there have been people and exchanging money for food as long as there's been money to exchange. The restaurant as we understand it now, the place where you go, you know, Rick, where you get a menu, your table is by itself. As I say, you're likely to use it to court somebody has a certain kind of theatrical function, that really only begins to appear around 1780 in Paris, around the beautiful Palais Royal. It's a new way of dining. You know, before that, you had what were called uh, table d'hôte. We still use the word now, meaning big common tables where you had essentially mm -hmm. everybody eating the same kind of thing. You can find restaurants like that in Spain and Greece even today. And that was a very different experience, a wonderful sense of communality, of course, but less of that sense of intimate exchange between you and the person you're dining with, and also between you and the chef, right? Because you have a kind of conversation with the chef when you're eating in a good restaurant. Choices you make, the things that are recommended. So that kind of intimate experience of choice and elevation that we associate with the restaurant, you really only begin to find that in Paris around 1790. Yummy, 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 I got love in my tongue. As silly as it may. We're at 877-333-7425. And there's more Behind the Kitchen Door with Adam Gopnik. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. From the table to the chef's kitchen, we're exploring the food culture of France right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Adam Gopnik. Adam's been writing fiction, reviews, humor pieces, and art and social critiques for The New Yorker now for more than 25 years. 
His books include a collection of essays about raising his children in New York City, about taking his family to live in Paris, a book comparing the lives of Lincoln and Darwin, who shared the same birthday, and children's and juvenile fiction. His latest book is The Table Comes First, Family, France, and the Meaning of Food. It's published by Knopf. Just thinking about how the chef is a part of the conversation and the theater of the meal, it just all makes sense to me because to have some kind of a connection with the chef makes it a much more intimate experience. And I find all over my travels, chefs just love to come out when they're done cooking and just kind of check in with you and celebrate what a beautiful time it was for everybody involved. When my son was about 18 months, we went for a very special lunch at a three-star place in the north of France in Champagne. And the chef had made for him, invisibly, you know, and I didn't see him, these wonderful scrambled eggs, which is still the scrambled eggs I make for him to this day. And when the Mm -hmm. chef came out, just as you described, to sort of make the rounds of the table and see if everyone was pleased, my 18-month-old son rose up in his high chair and gave him a standing ovation. Whoa, now that's a triumph, Dad. That's great. (laughs) Exactly. And I, so I watched it. I say to the chef, (laughs) how did you make those eggs? And he gave me the recipe, and I, I include it in The Table Comes First. I'm talking with Adam Gopnik, his book, The Table Comes First. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Abby's on the phone in Tallahassee, Florida. Abby, thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. I can't wait to read the book, Adam. It sounds really interesting. I lived in France for a while as an au pair. It was more than getting to visit. I lived with a family, and it's changed my lifestyle back in the States and how I eat and can you say in what in what way? Um, I eat a lot slower now. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd have three-hour meals on a weeknight in France. Learn to like slow down, enjoy things more. Um, Abby, did you find that the French would eat more with the season? Very much so. They did not buy things out of season, and they learned to. That that's a big thing that I learned there was eating in season. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we'd go out on the weekends and go mushroom hunting and eat those in omelets for dinner. Uh, they had a garden, and in the summer, you know, we ate a lot of tomatoes, and we wouldn't eat tomatoes in the winter. Unless it was tomato season, store. yes. Why would they eat with the season then? Because that's when things were at their peak, and that's when they tasted the best. Um, it also, you know, just kind of goes with the weather. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't want to idealize the French too much, because there's plenty of frozen uh Peas served in French meals, and there's, unfortunately, now more and more you can find things like strawberries out of season. But the principle, the things taste best when they're freshest, is one that I think still is at the heart of the French attitude to food. Yes, definitely. Even though we would sometimes do grocery shopping at a chain supermarket, they would Mm -hmm. have, you know, like eggs from a local farmer in the chain supermarket, and they seem to just... You know, whereas here, there's like a whole movement for local food. It seemed to just be like a normal thing there. That's right. You're always told, or there's always a little sign saying where the beef comes from, uh, where the lamb was raised, and, and so right. on. As you say, you see more and more of that here, but it's taken for granted over there. Yes, it definitely is, and it's hard to come back here and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, go in the grocery store, and be like, well, I don't know where this came from, so I don't want to eat it. Abby, thanks for your call. Thank you. Enjoy your French eating habits back in the United States. <laughs> Thank you. Good talking with you guys. Yeah. And Lynn's on the phone in Coral Springs, Florida. Lynn, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Doing great. I'm working at my appetite here talking with Adam. <laughs> well, I did read one of his articles, and I'll never forget how he said his son did not like the American yogurt. It was too uh, sugary. Am I recalling this correctly? Yes, that's right. One of the things that was startling to him as a little boy who had grown up in France and then came to America when he was uh, seven is the incidental sugar in American food. You know, it's always sort of startling how much sugar we put into condiments, into ketchups and mustards and yogurts and everything. We sort of start with a kind of default base of sugar and then work around it. And sugar in Europe and in France particularly is ever-present, you know, you have a great dessert cuisine, but it's more specifically used almost as a kind of spice rather than as the concrete foundation for all eating. That really stuck with me when I read that article. It stuck with me for years. 
What I was going to also say is that I'm a flight attendant for American Airlines, and I mm-hmm. am lucky enough to eat in Europe once a week. And it has really influenced my palate. I've also seen how France has changed throughout the years from when I was a student mm-hmm. there in 1970, not a student there, when I uh, went over to travel. When you were a student, right, traveling. Yes, to um, the way it is right now, and stores like Picard, which has frozen food, very interesting mm-hmm. to to walk through, but it certainly has changed. I, I, I still am shocked when I see diet sodas, because when I went to school in Italy and I would ask for something like that, they looked at me like I was crazy, including when they saw me put, at the time, saccharin into my coffee. They just were thought scandalized. Thought it was nuts, right? <laughs> yeah. They have a whole little cult of it, coca light and so on. Yeah, I, I think oh, that's true. Yes. I'm so glad you get to enjoy eating well in exchange for putting up with all of us miserable, cranky <laughs> passengers. That that cheers me endlessly. That is another story. That is for another story. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we do, we do talk about you, but go on. Linda, are you, are you saying then basically the change you've seen in, in French eating habits is they're becoming what we would think is just more American with, with fast food and uh, yes, diet? Yes. I, I mean, I've been flying Europe for 20 years, right. and I've still get surprised when I see McDonald's that have been there for years. But I just uh, am imprinted from so many years ago the way it was. And um, I'm scandalized. (laughs) Well, you know, Rick, if I may say, I share our callers' dismay when I see, you know, McDonald's in France and all of that. But let's remember, it's French people who are eating there. And the reason they're eating there is the same reason that Americans eat there or any other fast food place. It's because they promise cheap, somewhat uh, nutritious, whether we entirely buy it or not, food that's quickly available. So the appeal of fast food around the world isn't just the appeal of sort of junk and bad taste. It's also the appeal in a time when we're all so pressed for time, a time when we're all uh, so pressed for money. Those things have a natural appeal. And the real challenge, I think, for the next century, or at least for our generation, is to find ways that you can reconcile our need for speed with our appetite for excellence. That's a good challenge for French and American eaters. Lynn, thanks for your Equally call. Equally so. You're welcome. Bye now. Happy Bye-bye. eating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Adam Gopnik, and Adam's new book is The Table Comes First, Family, France, and the Meaning of Food. Adam, when we're talking with, with people who are you know, having a chance to go to France and go to Europe and, and be exposed to this uh, more ritualistic kind of eating and to enjoy the, the luxury of having a slow meal and so on. Do you find in your travels that enjoying and appreciating fine food is a class thing? High-class people are able to appreciate it more? Well, rich people can buy more fancy food than the rest of us, can't they? That's sort of, just, it stands to reason. Good food is another story. There's fancy food and then there's good food. I think that Though you have to search more now, in Europe at least, in France even, for good food than maybe you did 25 or 30 years ago where you could find a great 15 franc, you know, kind of $5 menu all over the place. I still think it's there. And I certainly don't think that anybody who's traveling on a budget has to rule out the possibility of eating wonderfully well. I think it's a question of knowing where you want to go, knowing the kinds of things you like. Obvious things, Rick, like being willing to try things that you don't normally eat at home. I would rather eat a, you know, jarret de pork, a pig's foot with lentils in France than try and have uh, another steak. And the same thing you can multiply right throughout the taste for the odd bits of the animal. You know, the book is called The Table Comes First because a wonderful cook in London named Fergus Henderson said to me once that uh, he doesn't understand why a young family starting out would buy a sofa or a television or even a bed. Don't they know the table comes first? And his whole theory of eating is is that you can only eat meat if you're prepared to eat the whole beast. That is, if you're prepared to eat the snout and the ears and the tail and the hooves, then you can eat the filet. And I think that the more you focus on that kind of, what should we call it, encyclopedic eating, the more pleasure you'll have and the better food you'll get at a reasonable price. You know, that was one of the most fascinating parts of your book. It seems like the subtitle would be Nose-to-Tail Eating. Mm -hmm. You quoted Fergus Henderson, this British chef, as writing this. The absurdity of our meat-eating is limiting it to a few square feet of muscle near the skeleton. Exactly. That's Ferguson. He's a wonderful man, and uh, that's his theory of food. And what's so interesting about it, Rick, is we know a lot of ethical vegetarians 
But that's a way of being an ethical carnivore, of saying, I'm not just going to eat whatever I find wrapped in plastic at the supermarket. Mm. I'll eat meat, but I'll only eat it in a responsible way that does some kind of honor to the animal that I've killed. I can taste it now. Deep-fried tripe, veal tail broth, deviled kidneys, ox heart with beetroot. The ox heart with beetroot, I will testify, is a fabulous (laughs) thing. And that ox heart is delicious as well. But those are the kinds of uh, vistas, if you like, the kind of new frontiers of eating that are very alien to most Americans, but that I think that they'd be surprised how much they would enjoy it. Oh, and that's part of getting out of your comfort zone when you're traveling. When you go to those markets, remember, there's some very salt-of-the-earth little eateries nearby where they they might specialize in uh, head-to-tail dining, huh? One of the funny things I always find going to a market in Europe, Rick, is that one thing that has not been globalized in our time are fish. You always see a weird-looking kind of fish at any market you go to, (laughs) whether you're in Venice or in the south of Italy or in France. There's some weird little whiskered swimmer that you haven't seen before. And I always like to try and get one or two of those. But I have to sneak them by my 12-year-old daughter. 12-year-old girls believe that food should look like the food they know. I had the most frustrating time as a tour guide with a bunch of high school kids once in mm-hmm. Italy. And we got served these beautiful fish, you know, with the heads on them. And, right. And the girls just freaked out and they wouldn't touch it. And I just thought, what right. a shame. <laughs> 12-year-old girls have limitless virtues, but <laughs> pioneering and eating is not one of them. Well, that's getting out of their comfort zone again. Also, you talk in a fascinating way about vegetarianism and making the case mm-hmm. against eating meat and making the case for eating meat. How does uh, vegetarianism set with French chefs and so on? Well, for the first time, there's a three-star cuisine végétale, vegetarian uh, restaurant in Paris. I profile in the book the the chef, Alain Passard, who runs it. He had a Mm. conversion experience. He used to be, I actually worked in his kitchen for a little while. He used to be, you know, full-on roasts and great French meat. And now he just does vegetables from his own garden, some of them extremely simple and very expensive, sliced tomatoes with, uh, with fleur de sel. So for the first time, you have a cuisine végétale. As opposed to vegetarian cooking. Yes, it's a very important point for Alain Passard because vegetarian cooking is still associated in France with sort of depressed, um, ethical guys who live in health food stores. The, the <laughs> idea of a cuisine végétale is that it's deliberate choice. It's joyful to eat vegetables because they can be more varied and delicious. One of the things that Passard does, it's almost hilarious, is you know how you always get something baked in a salt crust, a duck or something? Well, he does a giant beet of his own baked in a salt crust, and it's served to you just the way a, you know, a shank of veal might be served, but it's just that wonderful single beet, and it's pretty fabulous. You know, that is so important to recognize that there is, what did you call it, cuisine végétale, as opposed to vegetarian cooking. You go around Europe and you find a vegetarian restaurant, Usually it's just, as you said, it's for people that are determined to be healthy, not enjoy the meal as much, but to be healthy. Exactly. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Adam Gopnik. His new book, The Table Comes First, Family, France, and the Meaning of Food. Adam, I I love the uh, chapter in your book about wine, and, and you wrote, the wine expert can create a new space between intoxication and discrimination and then perform in it just as the fun of being a connoisseur of the classical nude, a la Rubens and Titian, is to play in the space between the erotic and the pornographic. Well, don't you think it's true, though, if you talk to wine, what we call in our family, after my daughter, canoisers. She saw the word once. Canoisers, right. Canoisers. uh, Dad, what's a wine canoiser? That those canoisers never like to recognize that the primary function of wine is to get people drunk. That's why we have it. That's why it exists. Now, that doesn't exhaust all of its ritual purposes and all the way we use it, but they like to create this space, as I say, where intoxication is this kind of secret that you don't talk about much, and appreciation, discrimination, uh, what year, what terroir, what vintage, is it Burgundy or Bordeaux, that that's all that matters. But secretly inside, we all know that while those things matter, wine exists to make us happy by getting us drunk. And it is just like sex, right? We perform sex, we enjoy sex, we delight in sex. And yet someplace deep inside us, we know that the reason human beings are drawn to sex is because we are reproduction machines. That's what our genes want us to do. That doesn't mean we have to make kids when we make love. It just means that that's the underlying reality of it. It's so true. People don't talk about the buzz they get from the wine, but that's... It's inseparable from the experience. And anybody who denies that a significant, huge part of the pleasure of wine 
is the intoxication it provides, not over-intoxication, and certainly not alcoholism, but the pleasure that the glass of wine gives you at the end of the day, no matter where it comes from, no matter how perfectly articulated your appreciation of its dried berries and wild smoke and total 1986-ness is, is the pleasure of the universal intoxicant of alcohol. And then you can take it also to the the ritual. I mean, because a lot of times it just seems over the top. But the ritual, I mean, you wrote the wine talk and wine ceremony are not simply snobbish distractions that lead us away from the real experience. They're part of what lets the experience happen. Well, sure. You know, I think that's always true. If you think about it, if we just were drinking wine out of unlabeled jugs without any idea of what it was, we wouldn't have that full experience. It is the experience of the poor, of the label, of the context. You know, all of our experiences in life depend on context. That's what gives us our pleasures. It's like dressing up to go to a play. Exactly. Exactly. Putting on that tie is part of what makes the opera sing. Adam Gopnik, author of The Table Comes First, Family France, and The Meaning of Food. You know, your book is a celebration of food and making it theater and making it uh, ritual and making it convivial. I I was wondering, when you look at all of this, this uh, occasionally pretentious and over-the-top appreciation of food, are you looking at it, is it a satire? And are people taking food too seriously? Or I wasn't quite sure what the backstory of your book was. I think that we run the risk of taking food too pompously, maybe. I don't think we can take things too seriously. I don't think we can take our pleasures too seriously. If you believe in the value of pleasures, if you believe that living a life of pleasure is an important thing, then you can't take it too seriously. What you've got are all of these material appetites, appetites in lots of ways we share with animals, and we try to elevate them and dignify them by thinking about them. An animal that eats and thinks has to think about what it eats in order not just to be an animal. I say that somewhere, and I think it's true. I don't think we can think too hard about our pleasures. I think that we can think too abstractly about our pleasures. I think that if we lose sight of, or we lose tongue of, taste of, the simple delight of the food in front of us, and we lose it in worrying too much about either the origin of the zucchini on the one hand or the year of the Bordeaux on the other hand, then I think we allow that wonderful sense of shared pleasure to sort of dissipate into the abstractions of food snobbery. I would never want to do that, but I think that in everything we do, you know how it is, Rick, the more you know about the place you're going to travel to, the more deeply you enjoy it. There's a big difference between knowing something and being a snob about it. I'm all for knowledge Mm -hmm. and I'm all against snobbery. So eating with joy and appreciation, clearly a life skill worth developing. And Adam, I would say your book, The Table Comes First, is a beautiful manual to read if that's your goal. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Pleasure sharing a, a virtual table with you today. All right. À la prochaine. You'll find more about French appetites and Adam Gopnik in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Our next culinary stop is Portugal. We're at 877-333-RIC. Hello, my name is Arnaud Servignan. I live in Paris, and a meal without a cheese is like a beautiful lady that misses an eye. Un repas sans fromage est comme une belle à qui manque un oeil. Merci. That's good. <laughs> I love Portugal, and when I'm in Portugal, to me it's such a a wonderful and stimulating and different place to enjoy eating. It's different than Spain. A lot of people confuse it with Spain, but it is distinct, and we're going to learn about eating in Portugal right now as we're joined by two guides from Portugal, Cristina Duarte and Maria José Cardozo. Maria and Cristina, thanks for being with us. Thank Thank you. you. You're both from Portugal, but you're from different parts. Uh, Maria, you're from the north, Porto. I'm from Porto. And Cristina... From? from the south, the main city, Lisbon. Now, how would the cuisine of Portugal change from the north and the south? Because uh, we have a long coast, so um, it's basically the same. Fish will be um, more or less the main dish. And once you go more inland, uh, we eat more meat. Yes. It's really a matter of are you on the coast or are you inland? Yes. More than north more or than, south? I think so. Also, yes, uh, south and north also. Don't forget that also the temperature is very different from one place to the other. Uh-huh. So in south, you tend to have a warmer temperature, and actually you want some dishes that are lighter dishes. In the north of Portugal, you are more onto 
heavy stews, beans, so tribe. things that... Yeah, tribe. tribe. <laughs> is, there, is there more influence from the Spanish Northwest Galicia in the uh, north of yes. Portugal? Yes. Actually, uh, we have many dishes which are similar. Okay. Yes. And in the south, you would have more influence from Morocco? Uh, no, actually, no. no. Because what is strange is that uh, we have a long coast, always bathed by the Atlantic Ocean, but we have the latitude of the Mediterranean Sea. So our influence is not really Morocco, but what are the tastes of the Mediterranean mm-hmm. Sea? Garlic, onion, olive oil. Oh, that it's is a Mediterranean the base. cuisine. Yes. I mm-hmm. see. Across Portugal, cod is a big deal. It is. Bacalao. It is. Although we don't fish in our coast. So this is from <laughs> Norway. It is from Norway, from Canada. that's the most curious thing to me, from Canada and Norway. It's your main (laughs) food. How can that be, Christina? (laughs) Because on the old times, you know, having a such big coast, but not every day of the year are good for fishing and going away. And going away for such a long period, you want to have your boat full of fish. So that's why cod fishing was a wonderful fish, because... They could dry it, they could salt it to keep it, and then you can eat it. Doesn't matter in summer, in winter, in Christmas Eve, on Fridays. They were mainly a Catholic country, so Fridays were always the day of fish. And, well, when you live in the mountain, you don't have fish. Okay. So codfish, Cod? it was something ah, that oh, you just... And you don't need refrigeration. Exactly. It just arrives to anywhere. So it, That's it's like it... a baseball bat. It's so hard. <laughs> you do exactly like you used to do with the meat when yeah. you didn't have a refrigerator. It's the same. You, you do with the cod. It, you salt it. And then when you want to cook it, what do you do? You have to soak it before, a few days before, the two co- days before. Uh, well, it depends on the size of the codfish, actually. And then uh, uh, you just change the water and then you cook it. Well, and uh, you just choose if you want to boil it, if you want sort of a stew. 365 <laughs> ways of cooking it. Cod, you say that with a little <laughs> weariness. And you have cod for breakfast, cod for lunch. You go to a bar and you have a little snack, it's going to be a little co- cod cake. Yes, there are some kind of a beignet. Yes, bolinho nice. de bacalhau or pastel de bacalhau. So bacalhau is the word you see, bacalhau. It's the wild bacalhau. Cod. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Maria José Cardozo and Cristina Duarte. We're talking about eating our way through Portugal. When we think of classic Portuguese dishes, what comes to mind? What's a, a classic sort of, if somebody's coming to Portugal and they want to eat traditional, is it a regional thing or all of Portugal? We can uh, talk about maybe the cozido à portuguesa, which is uh, basically uh, meat and sausages with boiled potatoes and carrots and uh, cabbage. Is that a stew? or a st- so It's not a stew. Uh, we actually boil the meat. Uh-huh. We boil the okay, meat. Okay, so it's a plate. with. A, it's a yeah. plate, yes. It's different kind of meats, and uh, the water that you use to boil the meat is also used for boiling the vegetables. So oh, okay. also the vegetables, they take that it's flavor. That wonderful yes. flavor, yeah. And what about the cataplana? Cataplana is more to the south, to and, the south of Portugal, in the, in the Algarve. First of all, you need to have a special kind of, uh, of pen that is actually like two halves that they close together, like a ball almost. A bo- uh, like a, um, what's the French? Like a globe. Bouillabaisse? Bouillabaisse. It's a bouillabaisse. Yes. It's, it's like a, a kind of bouillabaisse, yes. Okay. Though, and it could be any number of different kinds of fish? Yes, can be. But though we have that, that cataplana. same... Cataplana. Cataplana. Cataplana actually is the name of the pen. Because oh, the bouillabaisse, the stew, is caldeirada. So it are two different things. Cataplana is more to the south, to the uh-huh. Algarve. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful. The stew is in this particular kind of, of, uh, of pen. And uh, caldeirada is to Nazare, okay, which is also a fishing so it's south, another no, central, central part. Okay, yes. on the coast, good seafood. And Alentejo is the sort of dusty, high prairie country in the south. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot. I know a lot of the food says the so Alentejo, good. this Alentejana. Uh, oh, they are so good. What is it about Alentejo? That is- uh, well, in Alentejo, it's in the south, but they, they don't eat light meals there. <laughs> heavy meals. Uh, heavy meals. Cowboy meals. You got yes, the, heavy meals. You got um, the, the soup de Alentejo? The Alentejo, it's uh, with the bread. It's like a sorda. A heavy bread heavy and bread garlic with and garlic poached garlic and olive oil. And actually, they have lots of uh, dishes that uh, you do serve them with bread. 
Don't forget that we are talking about a region which we have the highest temperatures in Portugal. So the greens are something very rare. Potatoes don't make part of their, their main cuisine. So the bread replaces the hydros. So that's why you don't have so many fried French potatoes or boiled potatoes or rice really? so or Alentejo pasta. So is a is bread it based. Yes. Is it economically poor? Is that part it of it? It is an economic part okay. of Portugal, yes. A big deal also down there is the pork, Alentejo pork. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller pork than the, the rest, and the, the characteristic is because it's black. Okay. And not only black on color, and it has a unique characteristic, which is... Part of its life of this uh, this animal is fed on acorns. Okay, the pork fed on acorns. Exactly. Happy so pork, the food, happy pig. Yes. I mean, the grease, uh, it doesn't go in between the muscles and the skin, but actually into the meat. So it's have a wonderful flavor. More that flavorful. Muy- because of the acorns. Acorns, exactly. So this is something they're proud of when they raise their pigs with acorns. Completely. We still have in south of Portugal one of the most important forests of uh, Mediterranean, green oak and cork trees. So actually we have this flavor, so wonderful meat, but also wonderful sausages. You sound like you <sighs> love the pork. Oh, I love yes. it. Yes. Oh, love man. it. It's, it's something... <laughs> I did. I thought you'd be loving the seafood, but you, you, this pork thing... I love thing, to eat. Oh, you love to eat. <laughs> This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Portugal. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's on the phone in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you, um, Rick. uh, We had a wonderful trip to Portugal, the best food ever, better than Italy. And the best meal was in Sitio, which you take the funicular up from uh, Nazare to at this restaurant called Oluis something. Oh, yes. We went there two nights. The first night we had just typical grilled fish, and the waiter showed us how to how to eat sea snails. And we saw him bring out this 20-inch wooden boat filled with seafood that night, and we said, what is it? And he showed us. We went back the next night. It was filled with lobster, crab claws, crab meat, uh, oysters, mussels, sea snails, urchins, shrimp, Prawns. My goodness. It, it was, was, a, it was a boat, a literal seafood boat. A seafood boat, and it was under $100, way under. You know, it's probably convenient for them because they can serve whatever's fresh in that boat. So yeah. it'll vary to, according to what the fishermen brought home. Absolutely. And this was in... in um, now, I know the in, restaurant, and so do my friends here. This is in Sitio, which is yeah. the little town on the hill above Nazare. Yeah. Nazare is a great stop, by the way, if you want. One stop between, between Lisbon and Porto. Nazare, I would vote for. And then you ride the funicular up to the little town on the bluff called yes. Sitio. And this restaurant, you and I can pronounce Oluis, but then the next word, Marisquera, that means like a seafood place or something, or what is it? Medisqueira. The waiter yes. seemed very, you know, old-fashioned. Yeah. But mm. I mean, it was excellent. It was, just, it was the best meal we had the whole trip. Carol, you mentioned barnacles. Mm-hmm. Did you eat the barnacles? Yes, whatever they brought. Uh, well, Persebish. Yeah. Is that the word in Portuguese? Yes, Persebish. Persebish. I love the barnacles. They're quite expensive. If you go to a little uh, cafe or special restaurant in Lisbon and you have a glass of white wine or a beer and these barnacles, it's quite expensive. Why is it so expensive? They are expensive because it's dangerous actually to pick them up because they only survive, uh, they live in areas where they are beaten rocky by the, the sea. Oh, they're made tough and flavorful uh, by the stormy yes, sea. Yes, yes. So men have been picking up it from a long time, so you have to go further down, further down, actually by the line of water that is risky because of the tide. In the crashing surf. Ah, exactly. So, Maria... It's, it is near the cliff. Yeah. Near the cliff. Yeah. And these barnacles, Persebish... But how do you eat them, Maria? Uh, we actually have to take the inside of the barnacle because it has a sort of a skin outside, and then you have to take the long, it's like the body of a, or even the bone of it, and then you just eat it. A, a lot of Americans could understand it. It's a, it's a barnacle. It's actually a barnacle, and you break off. The, yeah. the, you hold the little shell, you break off, and it's got a long neck, like the neck yes. of, a, of a clam or something we might know. You break that off, and then you've got this beautiful piece of meat. It's just been boiled, right? How do they cook it? It has been boiled or not. Or not. Or not. Or not. Or not. Mm. 
and then you you eat it with uh, it's popular with beer, I think. With beer, yes. It's like beer nuts. As a starter. All right. <laughs> Carol, we're we're, <laughs> we're fantasizing about our seafood boat. Carol, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. We enjoyed the trip. Happy travels. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is travel. This is eating with Rick Steves right now. We're in Portugal, joined by Maria Jose Cardozo and Cristina Duarte, and Bob's on the line in Eugene, Oregon. Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you. My wife and I took a little bicycle tour down, kind of from Porto down past Lisbon and the Algarve and the back up to the uh, Alan Pato. We were just delighted by the seafood. This was in September and October. It was just fantastic, especially the sardines. Sardines. Sardines are wonderful in our Portuguese coast, though we can find them now all through the year, but the best time for sardines is from late May to September. And then in the Alan Pato... <laughs> We went to a restaurant, and in Portuguese it said they had wild rabbit, and they translated it in the menu to savage rabbit, so we oh. had to have that. So. Sa- I've seen that on the menu, savage rabbit. <laughs> so, Bob, you're talking about Alentejo. That's that whole high, dusty, rough cowboy country in the south of Portugal where you would more likely find a, not just a wild rabbit but a savage rabbit. A savage rabbit, right. And how was right. it? It was great. As we were riding our bicycles through that country, we we just saw a lot of game, a lot of uh, partridges and rabbits. And, it, of course, they have a lot of um, pigs that they turn out in to eat the acorn in the fields. And they are, the, the pork is just delicious. It is. But after a long day in the bike in Alentasia, there's really nothing better than a savage rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> actually, <Certainly true. laughs> actually, with white beans. Oh, with white beans. Yes, yes of course. So the rabbit and the white beans. <laughs> So, Bob, did you finally get down to the Algarve? We did. We took the coast all the way down to uh, the Algarve, went into Henry the Navigator's school down there. and Way on the southwest tip, yeah, Sagres. Right. And then we actually, to get away from the the high-impact tourist area, we trained almost over to the Spanish border and then rode up into the Alentejo from that up towards Elizabeth. Nice. I think biking down there to Sagres must have been quite dramatic. When you got to the, you know, it's just sort of this windy, godforsaken, rough and tumble southwest yeah. tip of Europe. And you go to that very tip and you can look out where the, the great Portuguese sailors would have gone off into the dangerous zone where they didn't know. I mean, woe to those who go beyond this point, only dragons go here and so on. Yeah, and, then, right. and then they'd come back and Henry the Navigator would, would collect them after they washed up on shore and interview them in his uh, school there <laughs> and, and see what they learned from their adventures. Exactly. And, and, then, and then they might have a nice cataplana or something. <laughs> yeah. It was certainly a highlight of the uh, trip. But, but just the Portuguese people were the real highlight of the uh, trip. I, I, just, just warm, friendly people. And we had no trouble riding into a town and getting accommodations because we were just barely off-season. So, Hey, Bob, uh, did you ever have uh, any of the, uh, the local wine? Oh, yes. What was your take on the, on the Portuguese wine? Well, we didn't wine? Uh, do any port. We were thinking about doing that up in, in that area. But we love the rich and hearty uh, reds. I, the reds. I thought they were excellent, and the price was right. Of course. And did you so, try the, the Vino Verde, the, the green wine? Oh, yes. We did have Vino Verde. We... The reason we went to Portugal is we heard you talk about it about two years ago. What did you think about the Vino Verde? It's it's kind of a it's kind of a what would you call it a, a rough uh, sprightly a spri- white, sparkling wine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and very refreshing. Very, it's that's well, a good way to put well suited it. Well for bicycling. Bob, when you were traveling, did you have the opportunity to go into a fado bar and listen to the music? My wife and I had some conflict about that, and <laughs> no, we never made it. We spent uh, three days on either end of the trip in Lisbon and just loved it and never got around to a well, photo bar. I would, like to, I would like to help you fill that gap in your Portuguese experience. If you don't know, my guests here are realizing, oh, no, I think we're going to have to sing. But I'd, I, I, just, <laughs> oh, no. I think in the blood of all Portuguese women is this beautiful fado. It's a, it's a charming folk music that you can go to in restaurants all over Portugal. And if you're lucky, right. you can enjoy a little spontaneous. I know I didn't warn you about this, Maria and Cristina, but what fado song would you sing together so we can hear the Portuguese voice? Uh, shall we sing the Casa Portuguesa? Yes, Portuguese house is the best. So, so it's, the first best. of all, so the, yes. uh, the the lyrics are basically the house in Portugal is is the warmest house, or yes, the warmest house. You're and, you're welcome. And the mm-hmm. lyrics go kind of describing all the smells, the decoration, the warm attitude, the two arms while, while waiting uh, for a person, open oh, for nice. you. And the 
kissing when you arrive home, so that's it. And then ends up like... É uma casa portuguesa, com certeza. É com certeza uma casa portuguesa. Well, sing a little more. Give me another <laughs> verse before you get to the end. Uh, well, we can start by the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Do the best you can. I know you don't okay. have the words in front of you. Uma casa portuguesa fica bem Pão e vinho sobre a mesa E se a porta humildemente bate alguém Senta-se à mesa com a gente Fica bem esta franqueza, fica bem E o povo nunca desmente Que alegria e tristeza and then the chorus again? Uma casa portuguesa, com certeza. É com certeza uma casa portuguesa. Very nice. So the house That's in Portugal you. is the warm house. <laughs> Tour guides in Portugal singing like songbirds. And that just gives me an appreciation of, of the vivid and rich Portuguese culture that a lot of people miss. And thank you guys for very much for sharing that. <laughs> hey, Bob. Great great to have you on. Thanks for your call. And thanks for the photo experience. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Obrigado. Okay, obrigado. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. I'm Next sorry. I, we have I'm a little bit nervous today. Are you? Well, I need a glass of wine now. Some wine. nasceu de ser português a vida pelo mundo Foi pelo sonho vagabundo Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WRTI in Philadelphia for studio help today. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including links to our guests and a phone app with interviews from the show and guided walking tours by Rick to many of Europe's most popular sites. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France, Portugal, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, the Basque country, and the heart of Portugal, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalog, and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.